welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, beautiful friends. So today we are going to talk about death, but we're really going to talk about life, about living, about how to live well with more hope, with more peace. We're going to talk about some heavy things on the road to get there, but I never want to leave us in the hard and the heavy things. I always want there to be more hope, help, healing at the end of our time together. And so I want to let you know in advance that kind of part three of this podcast, this this episode, I mean, this isn't a three-part series, but part three, act three of this episode right now, I'm going to share a five-part practice that I came up with just a few days ago that I've been sitting with and has really been helping me process this. It's really been resonating with me. And so I wanted to get this episode up and out quickly and in a timely manner to see if it supports and serves y'all as well. I even have uh, hand motions that go with it because, A, I just love joy. Why not? But also, I think there is, when you have a mnemonic device that really helps you remember something or kind of a somatic practice that makes it physical, it's so much easier to kind of hold on to it and really use it in real life. And so I just organically found these hand motions coming out and it really has helped me. I was like doing this while I was in the sauna the other day. And because I had the hand motions, I remembered all five parts of it and was able to sit and reflect. So I really think that you will find that beautiful. But first, let's talk about the hard before we get to the beautiful. So twice in the last two months, I have spent days thinking about someone I never met, and their family that I never met, grieving the loss of a total stranger to me, and certainly I am a total stranger to them, and grieving for their family, again, who are strangers to me and I am a stranger to them. And I do want to be really clear up front, anything I share in this episode, I'm not commenting on these individuals. I'm not commenting on their life, their thoughts, their health, any of that. I'm sharing the impact on me. And we did an episode, I will link in the description. I was referencing this in stories last week when the passing of Dave Hollis occurred. And I was talking about this concept of circles of grief. There's more depth on it. If you have not heard it, go listen to that episode. But I am not in an inner circle or second tier, third tier with any of these people or with either of these people. But you can have not known someone and yet have a personal reaction or reflection because something in their story or circumstances spoke to or sparked something for you. But I think we get wisely cautious about wanting to talk about people that we don't know when there's a a negative or upsetting situation that happened in their lives because we never want to feel like we are making it seem like we were close to someone or that we're exploiting what happened to someone or that we're even just being the peanut gallery commenting. So I just want to be so clear up front. None of that is the heart and the intention here, but I also want to share it because I think a lot of us hold back for fear of being perceived that way. And yet in truth, we see it all the time on social media. There can be someone that you didn't know at all. You maybe had a parasocial relationship with them. You might have followed them on social media, but you weren't friends with them. They didn't know who you were, et cetera. And yet you can just be 
gutted and devastated as you, you know, watch them experience stillbirth or something like that. And you can be so deeply grieved by someone you didn't personally know. And I think that can feel hard to make space for. There's times when, because I've shared something, I will get people messaging me. My friend Ashley Lemieux on social media, for example, has gone through a lot of areas and and elements of grief. And I've had at times people reach out to me because they know we're friends and it's like they're grieving for her and they just, they don't have anybody else who knows this person. And the idea that they're like, oh, this person I follow on Instagram, I'm just really struggling today because this person just had a stillbirth. And that other people may be like, why are you upset about somebody you follow on Instagram? And you're like, no, but it did. It spoke to me. And there is a validity in that. So also just trigger warning. I assume you were already aware when you clicked on this episode with the names that there is a trigger warning of suicide and suicidal ideation. So the first instance of this was in December when Stephen Twitch Boss, Twitch as I knew him from So You Think You Can Dance days many years ago at 40 took his life. And I was in London at the time with my family. I knew kind of in that example I was just sharing, it wouldn't, if I said anything aloud to my parents, they would have been like, oh, that's sad. But there wouldn't have really been some sort of connection there. My husband had no idea who he was. And yet I found myself just every day thinking about his family, about him, about his friends, just so sad about the whole situation. And yet feeling like, I don't even know where, I don't even know who to say this to. I felt odd just going on Instagram stories and talking about it because I was like, I don't know this person. Like, it it does feel so odd to process when you feel so impacted And yet there isn't that validity. Now, if something happened to a coworker, you could turn to your friends and people would say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And you would get that response. It can feel a little empty sometimes. And you're like, I don't really know how to explain why this is connecting with me so much. But I also saw with Twitch's passing that I wasn't alone. I think that culture responded in a different way than I had ever observed at the passing of someone because I think he was so young and he was someone who seemed to, quote, have it all. Money, like he did, did really well for himself, had a beautiful home. There was no reason to think there was money issues. Success, incredible success in so many different wonderful ways. A beautiful marriage and by all accounts, really wonderful partner and love story. Beautiful children, friends that just adored him, obviously from the outpouring, a sense of meaning and purpose in his life and who showed up with such joy and love. And I think in other instances, we've had examples in culture where someone has taken their life and it has been devastating. And yet we, I don't even want to say and yet, it was devastating. And there was an awareness that there was addiction, that there was mental health, that there was depression. And I think in this case, it appeared so out of nowhere to all of his friends. Now, again, we don't know him. We don't know his spouse. We haven't heard from 
his wife as to whether she was shocked, but every friend seemed completely blindsided. And that therefore rattles all of us then to think, is there anyone in my life who could be going through something that I don't know? Because just none of his friends gave any, everyone just seemed so stunned and shocked. And then you think, well, who in my life would I be just as stunned and shocked? And when I list off all of those things, you know, when you quote, have it all, of course, that alone is not what makes up this decision. And yet, it is usually either circumstantial that that you it's like this person was in debt this person had been fired like i don't know some sort of thing some sort of trigger or catalyst a divorce or it's a long story of depression etc which he very well may have had we don't know but there wasn't no friends came forward to say that everyone just seemed shocked. And then you just observe the friends and you think as a friend, who are the people that I would be shocked? And I started to notice comments, you know, even if this was not the story for him, I then observed people who left comments. And then I think I started getting things on my explore page, oddly, that were along this same vein of wives sharing their stories of having absolutely no idea that it was coming when their husband took his life, having no idea that he was suffering with depression, etc. So again, this is not a speculation on Twitch, but even through that, I had a lens into other people sharing that was their truth, that they, as the wife even, were completely shocked. And now these are furthermore strangers that are popping up in my Explore feed or that are coming in via caption, uh, via comments. And it just kind of rattles you to feel unsafe, to feel unsafe for your loved ones. And it causes that response. Again, not knowing any of the details for him, you still are having these thoughts and this experience. And of course, then we go to a common cultural outpouring. When there is gun violence, we respond with thoughts and prayers even though thoughts and prayers don't do anything to stop the gun violence. They don't do anything to keep us any safer. And in this case, there is so much that comes around on check on your strong friends. Check on your strong friends. That's how, that's what we can do. What we can do is thoughts and prayers. What we can do is check on your strong friends. And because there is an impetus, we want to feel like we're going to do something, right? We want to feel like we're not just going to stay this unsafe, this helpless, that we could be so devastated. But as someone who has struggled with with suicidal ideation once very acutely in my life, I share that in the first episode of the podcast, if you go back and listen, and it therefore just makes me think like, check in on your strong friends. I mean, it has to be the exact right time that you are checked in on. And you have to want to get out of that place. You have to believe that you can get out of that place. And I just think that is so, so rare, or rather that it's so, so common that those things could not perfectly align, that 
in my gut, I'm like, I just don't think that's the answer any more than like thoughts and prayers feels like it doesn't make me feel any better about my nieces and nephews going to school, right? Check on your strong friends doesn't make me feel any better because you think, again, I'm hypothesizing from what we know, that how many friends of Twitch's were checking in on him, were touching base on him, felt like they had just spoken to him and had absolutely no idea. So where my head went to in December, and I kept like processing this with Jeremy, I was like, it's like, and and mind you, I am not a doctor at all whatsoever, but in my my desperation of like reaching out my hands to the heavens and being like, what can we do? I'm like, is there a drug that you can take? Is there, can we study the human mind to figure out what is it that happens in the human body when you feel such a cavernous plummeting of hopelessness that will never end, that you just don't see any way out, you don't see any way you could survive this pain. You don't see any way you could make it through this pain to get to the other side of happiness. You either can't see that there is any happiness, or if you can see it, you just don't believe you can survive enough to get there. And Shalene Johnson did an episode right after Twitch passed, and she knew him lightly. They had like messaged back and forth, um, texted, things like that. She'd given him some business advice. So again, she was not speaking because she knew him personally. But she used an analogy that really helped me. She was talking about how she is just always like wants to be very polite and very proper. She's always thinking about, you know, not speaking too loud at a restaurant to make sure that, you know, she's not bothering anyone else, that kind of thing. And she went to have some dental work done. And the the numbing cream didn't take. And she was in such extreme pain. She also is not someone that really swears a lot. And she's like, I was screaming curse words at the top of my lungs. I had no conscious thought in that moment that there are patients in the other room, that there are children in other rooms that I am scaring. Because my depth of pain was so great, I could not have compassion. I could not have a, a a space to care or think or prioritize the impact to others because the pain was so all-consuming. And I wonder if you have ever been in a pain like that. Perhaps it was during birth or something like that. You're in labor and it's just you're not thinking, am I crushing my husband's hand too tightly while I'm doing this? You just can't think of anything other than the pain that is going through you. And I thought, imagine if Shalene is screaming in that kind of pain and her friend just walks into the dentist's office and is like, you know, let's just go for a walk. I'm just going to check on you, strong friend. You seem in pain. Let's just go for a walk. Like, I'm here at the right time and I can see that you're in pain. I'm just going to intervene. I had dental work when I was like maybe seven or something. I had a tooth on the roof of my mouth and I had it removed. And I remember being in the dentist's office afterwards. I don't know why I remember this, but I've thought about this so often over the years. They were asking me if I was okay. And I like nodded and smiled and went like, "Mm mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, are you sure? And I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. And I got into the car with my mom and we closed the doors and I started screaming and crying. I was in so much pain, 
My mom was like, why did you not tell them when you were inside? I was like, and I still can't to this day tell you why. Why, which is another conversation for another day. Why did I feel like I didn't want to be a bother? Why I wanted to like hold it in or whatever. But here were medical professionals. And I was only seven years old. Here were medical professionals who were saying, we're checking on you, strong friend. Like, we can give you something else if you're in pain. And for some reason, it's like I was in so much pain, I just couldn't, I couldn't even express it. Now, I was thankfully able to do that with my mom, and I don't remember what happened. Did we go back in? Did we get more painkillers or whatever? But I think that level of pain that Shalene was talking about, if you take your friend on a walk around the block while there is still unmedicated drilling happening in their mouth, I mean, they're walking with you, they're going through the motions, but they are still thinking about that pain every single second. What they need is a medication. What they need is a painkiller so that that pain can subside. They don't need you to be like, let's have a conversation about something we watched on TV to distract you from the pain. Like when it's the most excruciating pain you can ever have been in, maybe it's when you got news that someone died. It's just what was that pain? You, you, when you got broken up with, when you realized the relationship was ending, when you realized they were leaving, like just what's that most devastated moment you can think of? All you could think about was that pain. And I think as I reflected more on that, I realized that what is so challenging when we hear that someone has taken their life is that we, we are standing there as a person who is not in unsurvivable pain. And we are looking at them thinking... Like, how how could they do that? Like, they just, they had so much to live for. They had so much this, like, and it, and it feels hard to relate to that space. And yet, actually, we do have that lived muscle memory somewhere in us that we've had that excruciating moment. And from that place, something like the dental surgery, you realize it's less of a choice than it seems. Shalene isn't making a conscious choice to scream expletives at the top of her lungs. It feels like the only way to survive that instant. We, meanwhile, are observing it rationally. But it's not rational in the moment. It's something that that happens in the body. And that's why I'm wondering, again, with zero scientific medical basis, I'm just like, is there something that happens? Is there something in the way that you can take an extremely strong painkiller when you are in pain? You know, we can give you an epidural to get you through birth. We can give you, I don't know what they give you to get through a C-section. Like, we can give you something to numb the pain. Can we do that emotionally to get us through these moments? I have no idea. I'm just like... I'm just truly sort of authentically processing as no sort of expert here of just how I want to go to what what can we do that solves it? Because I think the adage of checking in then also leaves so much guilt if you are near someone and the, the cultural story then is the idea that you could have done something. I mean, first of all, I saw a couple of people commenting on Twitch's posts and saying things like, 
you know, when you look at his last post, you could see it in his eyes. And I was like, the lack of sensitivity and the audacity for someone in hindsight to be like, you know who couldn't tell? His wife, his mom, his kids, his best friend. But like me, Sarah Smith, I could tell. I would have known. I'm the one who would always be able to check in on the strong friend. Like that is so audacious. That is so offensive to the people that love this person. And a very dear friend of mine lost a very dear friend of hers to suicide last year, I believe it was. And she and her girlfriends were the the best check on your strong friend squad that there could be. They were flying to visit her. They were spending the night with her. They were checking her. They were you know, sharing notes. They were working together collectively. Like you want a group of women behind you, supporting you in your darkest time. Like this was the girl gang. But they couldn't be there with her every minute. They couldn't. And my friend had checked in on her very obviously not strong friend, her very obviously struggling friend, but she couldn't leave her entire life to move in with that person every single day. None of us can. And in my instance, I mean, I had a, a, one of my closest friends at the time was my neighbor right across the hall. She knew the scenario that I was in, the scenario that was triggering my, that triggered my suicidal ideation. Again, it's an episode one if you want to listen. She knew that story. She basically sat with me like vigil for like 12 hours before. I just like laid catatonic on her couch, then like on my bed, then she came and checked in on me. I like, she gave me one of her Xanax. I didn't have any sort of like medication prescriptions at the time. She gave me a Xanax. Like she knew that this trauma was occurring. But she could never have known where my head was taking it to if the tables were turned when I've been with people in that depth of despair. It's never occurred to me that that's where they are going to take it. I just recently had a friend sort of somewhat casually confess that there was a time she's like, oh, yeah, this time when I was living in like this neighborhood, you know, and I was I was having like suicidal ideation. And I was like, in my head, I thought I never knew that. I had no idea that that's how bad it got. And this was someone that I was talking to often. But the I don't think that my neighbor could have helped because I didn't think the pain was survivable. I didn't think it was worth surviving to have to live in that pain. It felt physically impossible. There wasn't a – it would have taken – such a like wise and savvy person to have figured out what to say to me to like get me through that night. And and that was someone literally right there. She was literally 10 feet away. And it never one time has ever occurred to me. I wish she'd done something. I wish she'd said something. I wish no. I don't think there's anything she could have said, which I'm not saying to discourage us from trying by any means. But my question is just, again, I'm just like totally riffing as friends right now, like you and I. Like, I'm like, is there something chemical? Is there, have we done research into that depth of emotional pain that, that is there something else we could do to say, 
checking on one another isn't the thing. And, and I've had that moment. And I think a lot of us have. You just, that pain is so horrific. And if you can take yourself back to that, I think then we can all empathize with, not in a scary way of feeling like it could happen to me, but really a humble way of saying like, this is, this is being human. This is, it is hard. We go through excruciating things in life. And a lot of people have these thoughts from time to time. And yet, if you can just hold on, it gets so much better. The dental pain isn't life. People's lives don't end when their spouse dies, when their parent dies, when their child dies. Like we see evidence of us all around that people have gone through the most horrific things and also a few years later are living lives with so much joy. And I am so endlessly grateful that I am here so endlessly grateful. All of the joy meeting my husband, like just so many things that I I would have missed out on, that that he would have missed out on, that my family would have missed out on. And I look at someone like Twitch and I just think he was so close to joy. And again, with the humility that I'm speaking about someone I don't know, I'm just saying as someone who has been there, with empathy for every person who is there, I want to say there is, I can rash, I am rational right now so I can see. There is so much joy yet to come. How do we help people survive until then? And that's not said from a position of, I will always be this rational. It's said from a humility of, I will be at a place of excruciating pain and grief in, at some moment in my life. And I will feel that depth of bottom dropping out. What, how, what can we do is that to help us believe that that pain is survivable? Because while we will all process it differently, we all will experience that. So that was the, that's part one, was just that share that is a few months late and yet has still weighed heavy on me and I his wife just shared um a, a video recently I'll put it in the description below that I just I think this story will stay with me for a long time like I very much hope that she writes a book one day or does an interview I I think that you know it's just it's it's such a painful story to have observed and that story may not have spoken to you there may be others and i've i've even heard had you dm me when this celebrity this happened when this person this happened someone that i went to college this happened to you have your own stories where it just it's stuck with you it just feels like you know that that gum punch and it stays and so then maybe it was last week that um in February, end of February, I don't know, February, middle of February, that Dave Hollis passed away at 47. And again, I do not know him. I don't have a personal connection to him. Back to those circles of grief. It was more, this was a little bit more personal in that we are vaguely in the same world and and have friends friends in common or friends of friends. And so it's more that it's that sense, like if it's someone that went to your college, like you didn't know them, 
but they went to your college. They were friends with your older brother. Like, you know, that sort of thing where you just, it somehow hits a little closer to home. And when someone, again, is so young and it appears by all of his friends' reactions that it is a complete shock. And there is that same decentering. I mean, I saw this news and I just sat on my couch for like 90 minutes kind of trying to, just feeling rocked by this. And again, so aware. I I don't know this person. I'm not experiencing a, a grief. I'm not experiencing a personal grief over this person. But I'm experiencing a sense of unsafety in my body that goes, can someone in my life around that age just be gone out of nowhere? Like that just rocks your day. And yet again, I went on stories and said, like, I feel awkward even talking about this because I don't, I don't know this person. I don't want anyone to think that I that I do, but I just I feel really shaken today. And so many of you said, you know, the same. And that same day, an article came out. There was a report from Cedar Sinai. I'll link this below. There was a report from Cedar Sinai. It had been on the Today Show that morning. <clears throat> Mel Robbins, who was was a close friend of Dave Hollis shared this on her stories that the same day there was an article about how many people in their you know late 20s to early 50s have had have had heart attacks and heart related issues deaths or issues since covid as a, an after effect of getting covid and to be clear i also saw many comments alluding to the fact that this was related to the vaccine. So I just want to be really clear that the research in this article, this was about the effects of getting COVID, not of getting the vaccine. And you were 11 times less likely to have these effects with the vaccine. So it was not, uh, this, this article is not talking about effects of being vaccinated. It is talking about effects of getting COVID and, if anything, being unvaccinated while getting COVID. So I have no idea. Again, I am not making a commentary on anyone's health or anyone's cause of death at all. This is not about him. This is about my experience. I, Hillary, observe someone, 47, in, again, purely by observation, seemingly great health, runner, active, whatever, all of that, just gone, seemingly based on his friend group as a total shock at 47. I read this article. One of my best friends had serious heart challenges after COVID. And again, in good health, runner, active, younger than Dave, but not all that much younger to be in a totally different demographic, and had health problems. I was had heart problems after getting COVID. And it just really kind of rocked both of us. Like, you know, she was like, I don't, I, I don't know what to do with this information. I feel shaken by this. And I said, well, isn't there something we can do? You know, back to the check on your strong friends. I'm like, isn't there something we can do? I said, should Jeremy and I, you know, my, my friend Alex recommended this doctor here because we don't really have a primary care doctor. And then I'm wondering, maybe we should go to that doctor. But before we go, we should email and we should ask like, you know, here was this article. Are they doing tests or anything like that? Like, can we get an MRI? Can we get anything to know if we're okay? And my friend was like, based on my experience with 
cardiologists and the doctors I've gone to over the last couple of years, they just said like there wasn't anything that they could do. There, there, there wasn't anything to be done. And I, I said that just feels so hard for me to wrap my brain around because just as I do with suicidal ideation, I want to be able to control it. I want to be able to save, protect, help myself, my loved ones, society at large. And to sit with the idea, like in the same way that I'm like, are, is there chemical stuff that we could be figuring out with the suicidal ideation? Like, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm purely just a human, like postulating. And now with this heart stuff, I'm like, but are there things we can do? Is there something that we can do? And to feel like I don't think there is, or that, that I know of rather, right? We hope that psychiatrists and doctors are are moving forward and exploring more. But to be sort of hit with the humility that I, as a non-psychiatrist and non-medical researcher, non-cardiologist, there, there's nothing I can do. And if it was an obvious thing to do, I trust that we are smart enough as a species, we would have figured it out. So we don't appear to know yet what to do is just so hard to sit with. And so I was like, all right, how do I process this? Like, how do I process this in my body? Because, and I'm like holding my like solar plexus as I keep saying this, like, whew, this feels like a lot. Like now I'm holding my heart like between my breasts and like at the bottom of my neck. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, and I'm holding the side of my face. Like, whew, how do I sit with this fact that I don't think checking on my strong friends is enough? And that I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to respond in this conversation to one of my best friends who's like, I feel even more personally shaken by reading this article. And maybe, maybe not, there is a correlation with this individual Dave who just passed. But even if there isn't, it still brought us to an attention on this article today And now, how do we sit with this? Like, what do we do? And I I wanted to do this episode on it because I think, I want to, I'm sitting here for a minute in it because I want to acknowledge how much, I want to empathize with how often in life something happens and we don't know what to do. And I am a problem solver. It's like one of my... (laughs) It's one of my spiritual giftings. I'm good at problem solving. I'm good at giving advice. I'm good at strategizing. And yet, like, we just can't problem solve everything in life. And yet I think, well, I don't want to get off this conversation with my friend and just go to bed and weep. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to just, I don't want to walk around terrified for the next few years that me and the people that I love and my friends that are in their 30s and their 40s could just drop dead at any moment. Like, that feels terrifying. There must be some way to like move forward to feel a sense of control. And then I saw that an article had come out about people were sharing this, this quote, prophetic tweet. That's what other people were calling it, this prophetic tweet, something that Dave Hollis had shared 18 months ago. And it was something to the effect of, you know, what would you do if you knew you only had two years left to live? And you know, that's, I see the wisdom in that. You know, I've asked myself questions like that before. It's why I I prioritized writing my style book and was like, this is a huge leap of faith to just prioritize this 
while trying to run my business, but I, heaven forbid, I get, you know, we call it the bus test. Like if I got hit by a bus in three years, this is what I would be grateful that I did. Heaven forbid I got a cancer diagnosis in three years, I would be grateful that I did this. So it can be a beautiful exercise. But that is generally beautiful when it gives you clarity about one thing, right? My one thing was I would wish I'd written my book or I'd be grateful that I wrote my book. It didn't become a laundry list of 82 things I would do every day if I was like, you know, carpe diem, living each day as if it were my last. Because you might also have 52 years left on earth. And so you can't just quit your job. You can't be like, oh, if I only had two years, then I just wouldn't be working anymore. You can't just be like, oh, well, I I, I too want to write a book, so I'm just going to quit my job so that I can write a book that I'm going to get paid very little money to do. Like that, that's not a logical response. You can't say, well, if I knew I was going to only have two years left to live, I wouldn't have a child. I mean, you know, if you're like, oh, we're thinking about having a child, we're thinking about having another child. You can't just not have kids. You can't just say, well, I guess I wouldn't be trying to go through this breakup right now. I would probably just, you know, avoid that pain and make it better or, you know, like, but but you can't know. You also could be here for, for, for 50 years. So unless you have a long heads up, such as you have a terminal diagnosis and you do in fact have a year to live. Well, if that is your actual reality, that is going to change things. But we know that it's a fact. It's not a hypothesis or a possibility anymore. Because statistically, it is much more likely you have decades rather than a couple of years. So we have to live into the statistical probability that we got decades. Which is why we don't just start blowing all our money on vacations and like, screw retirement, screw 401k. Like, we say, I have a much better chance of living a long life. Unless you now have a statistical probability that there's a 99% chance you have a year. Well, then yes, that's going to change things. We hope most of us are lucky enough to live to 95, you know? And unless you have that long heads up where you're like, I have exactly a year left, or I'm living till 95. Like that's, you know, I'm, I'm having this conversation with you, Hillary, and I am 95. I have gotten to that place. Unless you're in either of those scenarios, I don't think you can have lived well enough to really say, I have as much peace as a human could have that I did enough because you had to focus more on living rather than dying. You had to focus on, I probably have 40 more years to live. So that's impacting how I'm spending my time, what my priorities are, how I'm doing my finances, how I'm taking care of my health, because the odds are I'm focused on living for the next 40 years, not what if I die in the next two years. We would make very different choices. So I think you can, you know, live well if you know you only have 90 days left or if you're in your your 80s and you're saying, what else do I want to prioritize? I'm not going to live to 180. So that gives me some clarity. But otherwise, you can't live your every day, every year as if it is your last because we have to pay the bills. If this was your last day, how many people would you call? You can't call them every single day 
for the next 50 years. Like, so it's interesting that, you know, Dave asked this question and I would imagine if I could just put himself in his shoes as a fellow content creator, it's a thought that crosses your mind. You journal about it one day, you have a conversation with someone, you ponder it, and it does create some realignment for you. But again, it's not this it's not the same thing as in my mind like it's not a prophetic tweet because it's not saying he actually thought he was going to die young because you would again, you would take very different actions. It's more of a it maybe there's one or two big things I prioritize. And yet, those things are still not going to be enough. You're not going to say, oh, I'm so glad that I prioritized writing that style book. And now that's enough. Like, I'm pretty much good. You know, you're never going to get to enough. So I just really was reflecting on, okay, then then what do you do? What do I do with this energy of mourning Twitch or mourning the idea of loss, mourning the idea of safety in in something like Dave, being being scared for myself, my husband, my friends, like this specific friend. How do I process that? Like what can we do to live well in the time that we have, all sitting with the exact same humility that unless we have been given a terminal diagnosis, absolutely none of us knows any ballpark on the time that we have left. So here are five things that I came up with. And as I said, I have a hand motion to go with all of them, which I will give you at the end. So the first one is show love. Actually, I'll just give them this as as we go. So show love is like, if you ever look at someone, you like make a little heart with your hands while you're looking at them, like love you. So that's my mind for show love. Show love is every day, and again, I'm only a few days into into processing this. I'm not coming to you being like, all right, guys, for the last three years, I've been doing this every day and it's changed my life. This is just how I am soothing my own soul in the last few days as I have been processing this latest news. So first is show love, meaning did I show love to, to people in my life today? That could be showing love to my partner by thanking them, by giving them a little rub on the back. It could be texting a girlfriend, hey, how you doing today? It could be turning and paying attention to my cat when he meows at me. It could be having a quick chat with the neighbor in the hallway. It could be sending a DM to someone being like, oh my gosh, that was so smart. Or, oh, that, you know, leaving a comment. Oh, that's so beautiful. You were just showing love. Now, if today was your last day, if today was someone else's last day, sure, you would be making 1,000 phone calls. You would be writing letters of all of your love declarations. But we've got decades left here on this earth. That's not a practical, feasible way to live every single day. But if you showed love, doesn't that feel like a good, a good last thing to have done on your last day? And it didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to be the laundry list of all the people. And I think that's where our mind wants to go to out of fear is all of the things that we do. You just showed love. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't mean, you know, I think about this a lot. Like I kind of wrestle with guilt if I like don't answer the phone when my parents call or something, you know, um, 
I'm sure I'm not alone that you have that thought of what if they were gone tomorrow and I wish that I'd picked up the phone, you know? But I think I've shared here before that Lindsay Letters, if you know her on um, Instagram, her daughter, Ava, had a traumatic brain injury um, from an accident a few years ago and has been moderately comatose in, in the years since. And her daughter was, I think, maybe 10 when this happened. And I remember her saying to me one time that helped me so much. And she just said, people will say things like, you know, hold your loved ones extra tight or extra close or like something along the lines of, you know, call that friend or spend that time or whatever. And she says to me, it blessed me so much. She's like, there is no one, one day, one game, one adventure or experience we could have had together that would have been enough. Like nothing would have made this okay. I could have been the most perfect mother every minute of her life. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been enough to make this okay. And I tell myself that a lot when it comes to my parents. That I'm like, one more phone call is never going to be enough. So take the pressure off the last phone call. Do you show love? Do you show love every day? And often enough for you, do you show it to, in this case, you know, my parents? Do I call them? Do I text them? It's not going to be every day. Because otherwise you are living in fear of death as opposed to living for life and living well. So number one, our little heart is show love. I'm just going to show love today. Number two is appreciate beauty. And for this, I put my hands like up on the sides of my cheeks. Like when you go, oh my gosh, that's so pretty. That sort of thing. And I think that appreciate beauty is just, it's appreciating being alive. It is the sunset or flowers or how good the warm tea feels or how soft the back of my kitten's head is or the artwork in my home or the, how pretty colors look. It could be something beautiful I saw on Instagram even. I think just that sense of appreciating beauty, again, in the little things, is that sense of, you know, it could be the beauty of community, um, the beauty of a kind act that you see someone do for someone else on Instagram. It's just that little hit of there. there is beauty in this world. There is beauty in being alive, in nature, in connection, like there just, there is beauty all around. And I just, I take that little moment of like, what were beautiful things that I saw today? Number three is keep a sense of the bigger picture. And for this, I put my hands on the top of my head. Keep a sense of the bigger picture. This is going up to your mind. And again, for me, I was just truly thinking, what are the things that if I get to heaven and I look back at my last day, I would say, I did it well. I lived well. It wasn't going to be like this epic day. I mean, the odds that it's going to be like you spent Christmas with your whole family and then you died the next day, you know, like that's a great last day if you love your family. <laughs> um, but that's just, that's the odds are not going to be that, you know, who knows what what Dave was doing on his last day. And, and, and as I say that, because it's just the example in my mind, you may be thinking about a, a loved one of your own that just had an ordinary day the last day, you know, and just no idea what came. 
And I just thought, you know what I would be bummed about is if, is if I just spent it pissed about stupid stuff. Like, I just spent it, like, the majority of it ruminating and angry over some email that I got and frustrated with technology or just, like, whatever that is. Now, could that happen in the day? Yes. Again, I don't want to get to a point where I'm like, I could die tomorrow and is this the last energy that I want to have? It's not that, but I think for me, I thought, you know, this would be a a beautiful way to live to not let anger or bitterness or rumination or frustration or exhaustion just dominate my day. That I'm going to keep that sense of the bigger picture, that even if... I worked like 11 hours and you were like, well, that's not how I wanted to have, you know, ended my last day. In the bigger picture though, was I, was I doing good work? Was I, was I trying to help people? Was I trying to help my team? Was I, you know, I was, I was, I was living well. I was living as well as I could with the project that was in front of me. And that doesn't mean that I like created a masterpiece on the last day. I might have just been making like small copy edits to a website and things like that. But in the bigger picture, I was not losing my temper, not frustrated. I was just kind of like not sweating the small stuff, you know, like having just that sense of, yeah, this is this is work, but this is work as part of a broader a broader scheme. Like even just, you know, keeping a sense of the bigger picture, you're not always going to be productive every day. We struggle with that so much. I think especially a lot of us in this community, which is why we struggle with burnout and anxiety and all of that, that like you're not going to be productive. And so you have those times when you're just like, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV on a Sunday and you're like, well, I mean, is this the meaning of life if this was the last day? which all of a sudden I just got this flash. Does anyone know? This is a very niche musical theater reference, but You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown is a musical. And there's some in Kristen Chenoweth's song, My New Philosophy. She says something like, someone said to like live each day as it's your last. And Lucy then like comes running onto the the stage and she's like, it's the last day? It's the last day? Ah! And she's like running all around freaking out. Like we just aren't able to to live in that way of like, if this was the last day, would I have the, the best Sunday ever, the most productive Sunday ever? Like, no. But we just keep a sense of the bigger picture where we're like, yeah, I'm just watching TV today. But like, this is rest in the bigger picture of life. We rest sometimes and I'm just resting and this is just appreciating beauty. This is like in the sense of the bigger picture. Yeah, sometimes we're just letting our body and brain rest and we don't have to be, you know, accomplishing something big. So show love with the heart, appreciate beauty, hands on the side of your face, keep a sense of the bigger picture, hands on your head. Number four is give thanks. So I just take those hands off my head and I make them kind of just like palms up. Giving thanks is of course, general gratitude, counting your blessings, asking, how is this happening for me? How actually does God have my back? Does the universe have my back? It's having those brief moments of acknowledging how privileged we are in the world, that we are not in a war or not in an earthquake, that we have enough to eat. And it doesn't mean, again, that we're just going through this like laundry list. It just means if that was my last day, did did I appreciate my life? 
was I just so grateful for my home or my cat or this podcast episode that I was listening to that was cracking me up or this heavy documentary that I watched and I just thought like, gosh, I really am – I'm just lucky that I didn't experience sexual abuse as a child. Like it's just – it's just luck, you know? And I got like – am I just having those those moments of appreciation for – my own life and for being alive. That's what happens when we give thanks. And then fifth and final is your hands are out in that palms up posture and just bringing them, crossing them across your chest or maybe across your arms, kind of in a hug posture. And I think that final one is loving yourself as a child of God. And you can use whatever language resonates for you there. It may be more about spirituality for you, but I thought about this because I went to Dave's podcast. I wasn't a listener of his podcast, but I just wondered like what was his last episode? It was about like how to have a better sex life. And I think this is like such a great example, right? If it's the last podcast you're going to put out into the world, it's probably not the note you're going to end on. But that's just not how every episode is going to be, you know? Sometimes it is. My friend Sunday many years ago at like 30 passed away of a brain aneurysm completely out of nowhere, not a single warning, just gone. And his last tweet had been faithful, just the word faithful. And so, you know, as his friend community, we sort of ran with that. Like, and sometimes life gives you those beautiful poetic moments where you're just like, their last post was about how much they loved their spouse and their kids. Like, and you're just like, oh, that's so beautiful. Sometimes your last episode was like how to have a better sex life because I don't know, probably the people on that episode are like promoting a book or something and that was just like the timing in their book tour and that's when that happened. But he had a post from a few weeks ago or a podcast episode that was on unconditional love and he – it was on a Sunday. He had just gone to church and he was sharing – And he said, you know, this is not about getting a new one to go to church. This is not about like sharing my faith. I just want to share like what I'm, what I'm processing. I'll link that episode below. But he really in essence was working on his childhood woundings, was working on here's what I've come to understand about the way that I was raised by wonderful people. But nonetheless, here's what I found as my coping mechanisms and they've carried into adulthood and they were present in my marriage which ended a divorce, and then they were present in my most recent long romantic relationship, that I am still working on this. And for him, it was a sense of of needing to, you are loved and you are noticed because of your accomplishments, because of what you can do for other people, that sort of thing. Like that's kind of the role he found in his family. And he was just really emotional and being so impacted by the sermon message that morning that was just on unconditional love. And realizing that's what he is trying to accept. And if you are a Christian, that's talked about a lot in faith and in the Bible. But here he's trying to just believe that it's true with his with the, the woman that he's dating, with his parents growing up and trying to just rewire that. And I just thought, you know, that to me is one of the most beautiful things that the in the month before he passed – he was working to love himself as a child of God. And that might mean for you like loving yourself as part of the the magical mystery that is this world. Like just the majesty of being alive 
and seeing yourself as this, you know, miracle of a soul. Like if you've, if you've watched friends go through fertility and infertility and, and birth and stillbirth and all of that, you just realize how much each life is a miracle. So in some ways, loving yourself as a child of God might just be tapping into that magic and mystery. It might be talking to God or the divine or source, whatever that is for you, just kind of whatever you believe is is there after life, heaven, et cetera, like kind of connecting with that. But I also think it's it's just showing yourself compassion. It's showing yourself grace. It's being proud of yourself. It's acknowledging an area where you've gotten better or where you are working to get better. And I really just thought through those things like, I can envision, again, this man that I did not know, that of course we get more of a glimpse into someone, you you may feel this about me, if someone shares their life through hosting a podcast and being on Instagram and teaching online courses and all of those sorts of things, writing books, you, you get to know them more. So so there is a sense that you, you know, we have these parasocial relationships, you can feel like you sort of knew who Dave was because of what he shared. And so I can picture him, but again, maybe you're picturing someone else in your life. This just happens to be what what has been coming up for me lately. I can picture him in that last day, again, as an archetype of a person. I don't mean this to be too specific about him. But I can picture that he showed love, that, you know, he, by evidence of all of his friends, that he would text his friends all the time. His friends had literally just heard from him that day. And his friends were like, here how he, he's how he was, you know, showing love. But it could have been in the ways that we don't hear about. You know, it could be that you were like chatting with your neighbor across the way. They're not going to be on Instagram telling that. It could be that you sent a DM to someone. That person doesn't know you. They have no idea you passed away the next day. But you were just showing love. It could be, you know, your, your pet. Might he have appreciated beauty, you know, taken in the sunset, et cetera? I feel like that's the kind of thing that he would talk about. Um, kept a sense of the bigger picture, given thanks, loved himself as a child of God. And in that way, while we still grieve a life lost far too soon, while we still grieve the phenomenal impact on children and family and friends, like it doesn't make it okay by any means. But if we put ourselves in, like, if that was me, would I be like, since I didn't know it was coming, and therefore I was going to do the meetings that were on my schedule that day, I was going to run the errands that were on my schedule, like, I needed to go pick up, like, you know, drain cleaner because, like, the, the sink was clogged from my hair. Like, I had to just do average, ordinary human things. It wasn't going to be a magical last day. But if I don't want to live my life in fear of dying, I want to live my life with the peace that I'm living it well. Then I come back to these five things. The heart. I show love. The face. I appreciate beauty. To the head, I keep a sense of the bigger picture. With my arms out, my palms up, I give thanks. And wrapping my arms around myself, I love myself as a child of God. Because I just, we're, we talk a lot about the concept of enough in my Healing Burnout course and my Elegant Excellence community. And it didn't have to be that he did enough. Because again, unless we are 95 and fading slowly, 
I just don't think we are likely to ever have that. And enough is something that eventually in our older age, we are faced with. Um, We were in London to celebrate my dad's 80th birthday over the holidays. And um, he is going back there um, in May for work. And I'm so grateful about that because London is his favorite city. Like the way I feel about New York is how he feels about London, but he's only lived there for like a year at a time, a few times. But he'd always say to me about New York, like, you found your city hills. Like, I found my city at, I think he was like in his early 20s. He went to London for the first time and just fell in love. And that was always his city. It was always our family city. And when I felt that way about New York, he was like, you found your city hills. Like, and it hit me while we were leaving that I said to Jeremy, like, oh my God, I am so grateful that he and my mom are coming back here in May for this work trip that he has because I don't think I could have, I don't think I could have stomached it if I knew, if I was with him on the day that he was leaving his city for the last time because he is getting to that age where, you know, my mom said to me, she was like, I don't mean this in a maudlin way. She was, and what's so interesting too about aging is I cry all the time about my parents passing away and they don't (laughs) um and I think I hope that that's because there is a peace that comes with understanding the circle of life as you age and that when you are decades and decades away from that end you are just more focused on the cruelty of it all and the fact that this is what happens in life but my mom again without emotion said you know she was like not not to be maudlin but I feel like this is, you know, that's, that May is probably going to be our last time in London. I mean, it's just, you know, it's so, it's so expensive to come over here. And, you know, we spent this money for, for Christmas and dad has that one last um, tour. But, you know, after that, what really would, would bring us back? And I thought, you know, it's got to be the last time sometime. And how blessed are they that they get to see that coming? Like, they aren't blindsided by it. And I wondered, you know, it's never going to be enough. My dad's at that age where, you know, my parents were supposed to go to Russia um, a few months after the war broke out. And, you know, my dad was like, yeah, it's a shame. I I don't think I'll ever get to Russia now. You know, he's at that age where he starts to say, like, you know, I don't, I don't think I'll ever get, you know, I, I, I missed my chance to go to such and such. And he's not necessarily saying it with so much longing because I think, if I could put words in his mouth, I think because he believes in heaven, he believes it's going to be better in heaven and that there just is not, it is never going to be enough. You are never going to have gotten to enough places or the places you love enough times. But I thought on these trips though, at the holidays and in May, if they are showing love to the to the people around them, even the places and the city around them, if they are appreciating the beauty that is all around them, if they are keeping a sense of the bigger picture, you know, even rather than the scarcity of, I can't believe this is the last time, the sense of the bigger picture of, we have been so blessed to get to live in so many countries, to travel to so many countries, like, 
gosh, so few people get this. And this is amazing that we've been to these places so many times and we know them so well. If they can give thanks for everything that they get to experience and have gotten to experience, you know, whether they are loving themselves as a child of God, only they can know. I think that's that one is so personal. But those others, I could picture them having those experiences in London. And now it feels more peaceful. It feels like a more peaceful way to live even when you're in an experience that you know is going to be your last. Not your last day on earth or your last years even, but your last time with that experience. And I've watched my dad has had that experience a couple times with like a family member, um, his cousin he grew up with. And he said, I'm, I'm going to go visit Howard for a last, a last time. And Howard's not in the hospital. He's not terminal. Um, but my dad just knows there's so much time. There's so much effort. You know, he so much money. It's just like, you know, you, you know, I can't, I'm not going to go visit him every day from California to Michigan. Okay, well, every week? No, that seems too much. Every, every month? Every, you know, you got to get down to something that says this is enough and I believe the time is running out enough. And man, that was, I couldn't even ask my dad about it. I just thought, oh, to say goodbye to one of the few people in your life that's known you your whole life once you're both, you know, in your 80s. Oh, I just couldn't fathom that. And yet, I think that, that, that these five things are what my dad was doing on that trip. You know, I, I've never asked him or I just had these ideas a few days ago. But I just really am trying to think, how do we navigate these really hard things? And is this what it looks like to do it well? And that we can do that. We can do these five things today, whether we're... 20 or 40 or 80, and whether we are doing something we think we might only get to do once or we think might be our last time to get to do it, but much more likely on a perfectly average, ordinary Wednesday where you got to pick up cat food and (laughs) pay your phone bill and do some work task that's super frustrating you, and you watch a home decor show on TV, and there isn't anything that noteworthy about it. But I wonder if you're doing these five things. Are you doing it well? And is it enough? Is it enough of a little check-in that I could come back to? You know, there's times when I have insights and I just wonder is this really going to sink in for me? Is this going to be like an idea that was interesting and I had it and I shared it on the podcast and then two years later, I'm like, oh yeah, I never did that. So I don't know. I imagine that this will kind of come and go for me and maybe I'll use it for a while and forget it. Maybe I'll use it some days. But I also imagine when loss happens, I wondered, well, these five hand motions, you know, I'm not going to remember where where were your your notes from that episode? What page of the Elegant Excellence Journal did you write that down in? But I thought these little hand motions, if I just keep doing them, if I can make them more muscle memory, then when I'm feeling scared about how much I can't control in life 
and in in living and death, I think that coming back to these would give me a lot of peace. And and seeing what the two men that inspired this conversation at this particular moment, Twitch and Dave, that were strangers to me and I certainly to them, based solely on what they chose to share with the world and what their loved ones have chosen to share with the world, it feels like they did that. It feels like everyone says they lived a really beautiful life. And since it's never going to be enough, all we can accomplish and all we can do, we're always going to want more. So in that paradox of the word enough, can it, while it is never enough, can it also be enough that each day and therefore throughout a year, throughout a season, throughout a life, we showed love, appreciated beauty, kept a sense of the bigger picture, gave thanks, and loved ourselves as a child of God. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Come share over in the Elegant Excellence community if you are a member and uh, if not, you are not yet, DM me on Instagram. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I am so grateful you are here. People in your life are so grateful you are here. You are doing enough and there is so much more joy coming for you. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is using the sauna in my building, which is not about saunas. It's about the fact that I threw out a conversation on Instagram. I was just talking about something like how I'm just constantly cold this winter. And um, I'm like, oh, I know it was. I did a Reels about it. And I was like, I'm just constantly cold this winter, constantly thinking about going someplace warm. I don't know why I'm so freezing. Like, what advice do you have for things that are keeping you warm? Like, I'm drinking all the tea. I've, like, got this bed buddy thing that I put in bed with me. Like, I've got cashmere sweatsuit, just whatever. And somebody said, I love going to the sauna or steam room, but then you do have to get back home so you're outside in the cold again. And I went, I have one of those in my building And in three and a half years of living here, I've used it literally once. And I don't have to go outside. It's right here. And I said to Jeremy, let's go tonight. And like two hours later, we had gone and I've now gone three times in the last week. And it just made me think, what, what do you have right now that you are not using? that you already have, you already have access to. And that might be you have a beautiful park, a five-minute drive from your house that you never go to. Uh, You're a, a garden. Maybe it's just like a peaceful place to go and sit. Or maybe it's a track that you can walk around. Or maybe there's a hike. You have books on your shelf that are on the topics that are on your heart right now that you are struggling with that you haven't read that actually are right there? Do you have, you know, a a meditation app on your phone that you used to use and you just got out of the practice of using it, but you could go back to it? 
do you have wellness things? Do you have like chia seeds in your cabinet or something that you used to sprinkle over your cereal and then you got out of the habit of it? It just made me think, well, mine is a very bougie example of living in a doorman building where we have amenities such as a sauna and a steam room. I just thought, I think we've all got examples of this. We all have something that if we said, I'm just struggling with this, I'm wanting to work on my physical health, work on my mental health, I'm struggling with anxiety, I, you know, that might even be like, I'm struggling to, to, to feel beautiful and I'm wanting to buy new clothes, but I'm on a budget. Like, do you have things in your closet that you aren't wearing or outfits that you could pair together or you've got makeup that you could put on. You've just like gotten used to not doing makeup and that's making you feel kind of blah. And you could be like, I can just throw on this black sweater and jeans, but let's go to dinner tonight and I'm going to put on makeup. I'm going to pull out the red lipstick that I never wear. Like the idea that we probably all have so much more at our fingertips without having to exert much effort, without having to spend any money perhaps, that is right there that would help support us, nurture us, make us feel comforted, make us feel beautiful. Maybe that's, you know, lighting the candles around your house. Like what is it that you are desiring to feel? And mine was the physical sensation of I want to feel warm. And it was like, you know, there's a really hot box. Like, however many floors below you in your apartment that you could just walk to. And I was like, oh, right. I just hadn't associated sauna means warm. I mean, obviously it does. But as I'm sitting up here being like, I'm cold, I'm just not thinking, oh, right, there is another warm thing there. And I wonder what it is that you're desiring to feel. And there actually is wisdom or help or support or joy right in your home, right under your nose, right in your community and in your vicinity that you could take advantage of. If you think of something, will you come DM me? Because I just would be so fascinated to see what all is out there that is probably much physically smaller in space than a sauna. Though on the other hand, it might be this gorgeous garden that is 20 minutes from you that you just never think to actually go and you know, take a walk in after work or go wander in on the weekend. So I hope that brings you a little bit of joy. I will see you back here next Wednesday with more grace and gumption. Till next Wednesday. 